volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank. The San Francisco Food Bank relies on volunteers like you to help sort, package, and distribute healthy food to people in need in San Francisco. Each year, over 22,000 people contribute thousands of hours to fighting hunger in our community. This support will enable the SF Food Bank to distribute 43.5 million pounds of food this year, enough for 93.000 meals every day. But they can't do it without volunteers. Visit www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer. Again, www sffoodbank.org slash volunteer to find out how you can help. CIA agents. Inexplicably, the deceased contract killers have the DNA of people who are long dead. CIA agent John Clooney devises a dangerous plan to capture a shadow killer alive. Contract a hit on himself. John Wessex, The Shadow Killers, is the second book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Drinking water before bed burns 46 pounds in two weeks. If you are struggling to lose weight and you're over 25, then you need to hear this. People are burning two and a half pounds. This is Labor and Love when we're lining up Anonymous Scooty for you.
You may 
Song says when you can't see your way, you feel it. Standing on the water, casting your breath. song says when you can't see your way and you feel that you've gone astray doing all you know how to do remember God has not forgotten you hold your head up and be true to him for he'll open doors for you
Good morning. Good morning, mutineers. Good to have you here. This is Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. Don't tell me it's not. And this is the B, Bill Morgan, with my show on Mutiny Radio. Labor and Love Radio, it's called. Where we talk all day, all morning, about the labor movement. It's history. It's present, it's future, criticism, uh, original sources. And we started off that. What did that have to do with work anyway, with labor? God will open doors for you by Walter Hawkins. That's how some people get through this life, this working life, by their faith in God. And that song beautifully expresses it. God will open doors for you. For that, we had uh, Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan singing, Gotta Serve Somebody and Nothing Was Ever Truer Said. Every day you go out, who will you serve? Will you serve God or will you serve the devil? Is it the corporation or is it labor? Who will you serve? Because every day, as the song says, we got to serve some. You don't stand up, they'll say that you uh, don't care. And before that, Nana Moscudi from my mother's country, Greece. Nana Moscudi with the song Lavrio, a beautiful rendition of Lavrio. Lavrio is a city in north central Greece known for two things it's silver mines in the ancient world. And nowadays has a place where workers and refugees come and land before the cops get them, I guess. Lavrio by Nana Muscuri. So what are we going to do today? Well, we, we've been focusing off and on in the last month or so, I guess, about the other side of baseball. Baseball, the great American game, and it is a great, in my, in my estimation, a great game, as games go. But it's also a business, and we talked about how a player named Kurt Flood uh, broke what was called, then called the reserve clause and gained his freedom After playing for several years, he was able to go around to different teams and accept offers from them. And uh, a complex story, but that meant that all players had that right then. Ultimately, Kurt Flood winning that right for them with his courage and his willingness to give up his career 
course, no one helped him. Jackie Robinson and a ball player named Hank Greenberg, a Jewish ball player, one of the all-time greats, were in his corner, but no one else. Anyway, okay, so that's the story of Kurt Flood and the escape from the reserve clause. Today we've got a story for you about Chavez Ravine, and if you're not a big fan, you, you might not know that Chavez Ravine is the ballpark of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And when it was built in the late 50s and early 60s, it was the non-plus-ultra of stadiums. It was uh, very carefully and very well done. A lot of the problems that we have say, at our ballpark or at ballparks around the country, don't exist at Chavez Ravine. Parking, for example, is very simple and uncomplicated. Anyway, but before it was a ballpark, it was something else. It was a neighborhood. And uh, the chicanery that involved getting rid of the people who lived there at that time were two little towns, little villages up on Chavez Ravine. So we'll, we'll explore that. Uh, we're going to have our labor notes show and our labor, radio labor. Uh, and then we're going to have a feature about the Wobblies. And if you don't know who the Wobblies are, uh, Wobblies were the most successful, certain certainly the most uh, powerful U.S. labor union, a union that took direct action as its creed and not uh, negotiations. The uh, IWW. Anyway, there's a new film coming out about the IWW, which we will get to. God will open doors for you. Here's Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, April 29th, 2022. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, labor calls for health and safety at work to be established as a worldwide principle and right. A reminder of the Rana Plaza murder of workers in Bangladesh. How a little Union Health and Safety Committee started the International Day of Mourning. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. Every year, three million workers are killed on the job. That is why the international labor movement has declared 2022 as the year in which occupational health and safety should be declared a fundamental principle and right at work. The call comes from the International Trade Union Confederation. 
The ITUC is the organization which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. It wants the International Labor Organization to adopt the principle of safety at work at its conference in June. The ILO is the UN agency focused on matters of work in the world. The call by the ITUC for health and safety at work to be declared a fundamental principle came as unionists were celebrating April 28th, the International Day of Mourning, otherwise known as the International Day for Safety and Health. On April 28th, the General Secretary of the ITUC, Sharon Burrow, called on labor unions to lobby their governments and employers to support the call for health and safety as a fundamental principle and right at work. Today we commemorate International Workers Memorial Day. There's no doubt that there is nothing more important than knowing that when you go to work, you will come home safely that the members of your family, when they go to work, will come home safely. Occupational health and safety is so important that it must be at the centre of fundamental rights. And this is the year the movement gets to celebrate that victory. But we have work to do. Three million workers around the world die every year from occupational injuries and disease. In fact, since 2019, when in the Centenary Declaration, the ILO parties, the workers, the employers, the governments committed to make occupational health and safety a fundamental right, nine million workers have died. We know that this can't go on. This is the year. In June, we will see occupational health and safety a fundamental right. But we need to lobby governments. We need to lobby employers. We must have Convention 155 at the heart of that guarantee. Thank you for your attention to the issue of today, the injuries, the diseases that plague working people, that destroy lives and livelihoods. We've always said that we will remember the dead, but we will fight for the living. Your fight, our fight today, is to see occupational health and safety a fundamental right. Between now and June, let's make this happen. As part of its commemoration of April 28th, Industrial Global Union reminded the world about the deaths at Rana Plaza in Bangladesh in 2013. Industrial represents a wide range of workers in sectors including mining, energy, manufacturing, and garment production. It was one of the global unions which negotiated a health and safety agreement after the disaster. Here is the General Secretary of Industrial, Atla Heya. Nine years ago, one of the biggest industrial homicides in the history of garment production happened in Bangladesh. 5,000 workers were forced to go to work in a factory that had clear warning signs of an early collapse. 1,132 workers died, and more than 2,500 were injured. Finally, Industrial and Uni Global Unions managed to convince the brands that they had to resume responsibility. We created the Bangladesh Accord. Nine years and thousands of factory inspections later, close to 200,000 potentially deadly traps in 1,600 factories 
have been fixed. People do not die anymore in an industry which costs hundreds of lives also in the years before Rana Plaza. Together with 160 brands, we have now created the International Accord. We have agreed to expand the scope of the Accord to one or more countries than Bangladesh. This means that we will be able to save lives in more countries. It means that millions of more workers will benefit from safer factories. The universal question remains though, how can we provide this fantastic opportunity to all textile and garment workers around the world? Garment workers need safe factories, so our work needs to continue. We need to engage more brands, also in North America, to gain the leverage we need to make this a truly global accord. Workers who produce the clothes that we wear deserve a workplace that provides them with a living wage and decent working conditions, not a workplace that threatens to take their lives. Help us expand the cord even further and save lives. Many people think April 28th was the initiative of the United Nations or some government or some NGO, but... The truth is much more interesting. The day was the idea of a little health and safety committee at the Canadian Union of Public Employees. CUPE is Canada's largest public sector union. I talked to Anthony Pizzino about how the day was started. Mr. Pizzino was a CUPE health and safety officer at the time. This interview ran in Radio Labour's newscast of April 28, 2013. It started by me asking Mr. Pizzino how the project first began. The day, uh, April 28th, a day of mourning, actually first started as a recommendation of our National Health and Safety Committee, uh, made up of uh, rank-and-file members from across Canada. And uh, they recommended the creation of a day to remember workers who were killed or injured on the job in uh, 1984. And then what happened? Well, what happened after that was, uh, was great. It's really interesting. The uh, Canadian uh, Labour Congress uh, and uh, some affiliated unions quickly adopted the day uh, across Canada. That was around uh, 1984, and then what followed was uh, 1989. The uh, American labor movement uh, observed their very first uh, Workers' Memorial Day back then. The, the Canadian government in 1991 declared that April 28th of each year should be a day of remembrance for workers killed or injured at work, and uh, there is actually federal legislation to that effect. Are there many international organizations which have adopted the day? Many, many international organizations. The day has really grown to the point where uh, many countries, I would say uh, more than 60 countries around the world, observe April 28th. So workers and many communities gather to remember um, workers on, on April 28th. You must be very proud of the work that's been done. Where can people find out more information about the day? There's a, there's a website, uh, hazards.org, who tracks the worldwide uh, attention that April 28th gets. And uh, there's a country-by-country listing of all the activities. I think it's absolutely amazing. And you're right. We should be absolutely proud. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to coverage of May Day preparations around the world, including Labor Start's own online celebration, the arrest of trade union leaders in South Korea, and the resistance of the Nordic unions to the new European Union minimum wage proposal. Trade unions there see it as a threat to their model of collective bargaining. We also carried items about the new minimum and basic wage increases agreement in Bolivia, the end of a bank workers' walkout in St. Lucia, 
And the news that yet more unions, this time in the education and financial services sectors, have joined the massive protests over the Sri Lankan government's economic policies. One story that has had a long, uh, very much a too long, life in our news pages is the steady stream of stories detailing the solidarity work being done by trade unions around the world in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One heartwarming note is the expansion of that work to include the many, many Russian workers and their unions, which risk imprisonment to protest the war and those who have left Russia rather than support the war. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found stories about the great work being done by New Zealand Union E2 as it facilitates the evacuation of women journalists from Afghanistan and their resettlement in that South Pacific country. We also carried details of the Building Workers International Stop Macho Culture campaign and the drop in labor market participation by women workers in India. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week includes lots and lots of stories, as you would expect, about International Workers Memorial Day events around the world. While those stories dominated this week, as they do every year, we also carried an update about a long-running oil refinery walkout in the United States of America that focuses largely on safety issues and a lovely but horrifying item about the work and lives of the people who maintain India's sewers, and the disturbing news that workplace injuries and deaths have jumped to near-record numbers in northern Canada. Our current photo of the week is of one of the many events organized by trade unions in Bangladesh to mark 24 April, known in that country as Rana Plaza Murder Day. It marks the anniversary of the 2013 industrial mass murder that killed 1,134 workers, most of them young women. Each year, trade unions also use these events to recommit to the struggle for safe and healthy workplaces. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity with trade union activists in Belarus, who were recently arrested as part of their government's ongoing campaign to crush non-state-controlled trade unions there. In just a few seconds, you can do your part in this struggle by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here are the low-tide drifters with, We just come to work here, we don't come to die. I've been working here for 15 years and I've seen some changes come. I've seen people working for safety. Well, there must be a reason why. Baby, we just come to work here. We don't come to die. 
sounds good Forget I'm not sure I could They say Time heals everything But I'm still waiting I'm through With doubt There's nothing left for me
There we go. <clears throat> we had uh, our radio labor teacher about deaths in Bangladesh. Anniversary of 1,100 deaths in Bangladesh because of uh, workplace failures, company failures, boss failures. <clears throat> Every day around the world, okay? This is your class. This is the working class. This is you. 8,219 workers die because of work-related causes. In the U.S., that number is 340, probably higher because uh, recently risk Work-related diseases and COVID have sort of mixed, so it's kind of hard to tell. At any rate, 340 at least American workers die every day. 340, let's see, multiply that by a month. 12,000. At any rate, it's too many. So this show, as always, is dedicated to those workers. Call them the unknown worker. Worked all your life. You built the bridges. You built the roads. You built the great skyscrapers. And what have you got to show for it? Okay. Enough said, we had uh, Not the Love and Kind, with, uh, of all people, Buffy St. Marie, rocking it. And the Dixie Chicks, uh, Natalie Maines and the Dixie Chicks, no longer the Dixie Chicks, simply the Chicks. I don't like the implication of the word Dixie. And their song, Not Ready to Make Nice, which was a result of a, a great furor they raised when they were in England on a, on a tour and the U.S. invaded uh, Iraq. Dick Lily Tomlin says, I can't even remember who's invaded in order anymore. <laughs> she said... Not uh, anybody who, huh? Who I can't even remember who was assassinated in order anymore. Said Lily Tomlin, trying to get some humor out of a grisly statistic. Not ready to make nice. The Dixie Chicks said that they were ashamed of coming from Texas, and of course, out of the woodwork came there. Fans, quote unquote, saying, you know, just shut up and, and sing, as she says in the song. I like to think that the chicks gained as many or more fans with that stand than they lost. Certainly of a better, more faithful type. 
And then before that, uh, We Don't Come to Die by the Pioneers group in Oregon. We just come to work here. We don't come to die. Someone got the wrong idea, huh? Well, we were asked to die as workers when uh, we were pressured into coming back to work during the COVID. At that point, most people were scared to death of the COVID. People were forced back to work or else they'd lose their jobs. So-called essential workers. Certainly they're essential, but they're not treated as such. Looking back now on all that, we can see that workers' lives were being sacrificed so that the company could quote the city, country, not company, could open up, quote unquote. All right, we uh, got a couple of features today. One of them is the, the Chavez Ravine, how that whole thing developed and how a neighborhood, a vibrant working neighborhood, two of them, were moved, removed from the face of the earth to make way for mega sports. Los Angeles Dodgers, 1961 or 62, I want to say. Now, if you're a, a, any bit of a baseball fan, you'll recognize the name Vin Scully because Scully was uh, probably the most renowned radio commentator, television commentator, announcer of, of any and uh, his retirement was a subject of a lot of uh, attention. At any rate, Scully, when the team moved there, Scully said that Chavez Ravine, the neighborhoods, were a garbage dump. A garbage dump. Okay? So let's see if we can find something. Of course, it wasn't a garbage. Uh, if Ry Cooter, Ry Cooter made an album. And if we can't get it now, we'll come back and get it. Uh, because Ry Cooter grew up in the L.A. area. And um, and uh, knew the neighborhood well. Maybe not well, maybe he didn't go over there, but he knew it was there, and they knew it was a, a working neighborhood. Anyone, people knew that. They, they use all kinds of chicanery, as you will hear now, to get people to leave the area. I had this dream that all those hills had been leveled, the houses torn down. I saw it in my dream. And exactly the way I saw it, 
It's the way it happened. It's the tragedy of my life. Absolutely. I was responsible for uprooting, I don't know how many hundreds of people, from their own little valley and having a whole thing destroyed. It's sort of taken on a mythical sense in people's memories, and then with the feeling that it was unfairly taken from them. So it's, it's no wonder that, uh, that people have strong feelings about it. Uh, he said, please, your sons and a baseball team, let's go to the Dodgers as a family. I'll never go again. I hated it. I didn't enjoy it. It was like dancing on a grave. 1962, in Chavez Ravine, a few miles from downtown Los Angeles, baseball fans crowd the bleachers of the brand new Dodger Stadium to welcome their team from Brooklyn. The stadium sits on 170 acres of freshly cleared land, land that just 12 years earlier was home to over 300 families. The neighborhoods of La Loma, Palo Verde, and Bishop, the neighborhoods of Chavez Ravine. myself I loved it there I loved it because we used to run up and down the hills and we knew every little trail around there in the neighborhood I don't think anybody want to move out of your neighborhood when you've been living there so long and you know everybody like a big family Allegiant Park was our playground you know the whole park was right next to it we used to go down there and swim naked in the LA River we used to make dams you know, with rocks, you know, make holes and then swim in that dirty water. We won a lot of trophies there in the Legion Park, believe me, we did. Football, you name it, baseball, basketball, we were good. We would get to the playground, who play the opponents, they would come up with their brand new uniforms and here we look like those goddamn Eastside kids, you know, raggedy ass kids playing baseball. That other team, you know, they said, how could these guys beat us? There were great times for me, beautiful times. The processions, the lighted candle. The men were dressed like Roman soldiers. They had this big drum, boom, boom, boom. We would go through the hills. It was unbelievable when I see now these pictures. I was really surprised. And I never seen anybody with a camera. Who would take these pictures? Nobody would go up the hill and take pictures, and nobody could afford a camera. I was just, I was looking for a, a kind of a postcard view of Los Angeles. I uh, had a friend who had a car, and uh, we drove around looking and found this hill and walked up the hill, and, uh, but then I looked down the other side of that hill I was standing on, and, and there was this community below me. It looked like a village, dirt roads, and, uh, Houses going up the roads and, and people walking around. The hill still exists right there. You can see it up the top. Yeah. So I was I was up there someplace when I took the shot. Yeah, you was up uh, uh, on uh, on uh, Pine Street, the Yola Drive. I made photographs in '48 and most of them in 1949. And I had very little luck in, uh, in showing them or in getting anybody to even look at them.
Fifty years later, Don found a publisher who thought his photograph should be a book. And for the first time, they were seen by the people of Chavez Ravine. Got a card table, a couple of chairs with uh, a box full of photographs from 1949. The crowd formed around and people were exclaiming and some burst into tears. <laughs> it was quite marvelous. It was quite grand. Oh, every time I see that book, I, I feel like crying. Like I, I could see the house where I was born. Like my daughters were born there. My daughter was born, my wife was born there. When I was a kid, I used to build model airplanes, kites, and I used to fly way on top of that hill. It was so clear. Many years back, you could see Playa del Rey, Santa Monica, and San Pedro, just the city hall with the tallest this building. And it was very nice up here. To me, it was just like a little ranch. My grandchildren, I'll take them up there for a ride. He says, Dad, was he born up here? He says, yeah. And they see the pictures on the book. He says, Jesus, those poor kids, huh? He says, yeah, that's the way it was in those days, you know? And barefooted and hand-me-down clothes and books and what have you. But uh, you know what? We were happy. We were happy people. We used to make, like, sleds out of cardboard boxes from Calvinator or Gaffords and Sadler, uh, the, 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 the stoves or whatever came in. And just slide down. It was like a toboggan, except it was in grass. <laughs> About 20 minutes to get up there again. That was a recreation. <laughs> when I seen all these pictures, and I was excited about seeing them, but then I was kind of mad, resentful about what happened when we had to move out. In July 1950, the city of Los Angeles sent letters to the residents of Chavez Ravine, notifying them that they would have to sell their homes to make way for low-income public housing. Frank Wilkinson of the City Housing Authority led the project. Our city was the first city in the nation to get the first $110 million, billion dollars in today's money for public housing in LA, where we were going to build 10,000 units. And Chavez Ravine was one of the prime places we found simply because it was predominantly vacant. So you could build without displacing so many people. It was something that really hit them hard, you know. Something like that that happened, I mean, it's when they're going to throw you out. They were forcing us out, really. They would tell us, if you don't sell, we're going to condemn your property. You won't get anything out of it. So that scared us, a lot of people there. The Housing Authority, as a public entity, has the right to buy your home. They'll pay you a fair market value, and then you are required to sell. That's the power that we had. And I prepared a certificate to every family that I visited there, and I visited all those people, saying when the project is built, you and your family will be the first priority to get there. You can pick the part of the project you want to live in. That never happened. They never built anything like that. They just went ahead and built the Dodger Stadium. And Richard Neutra and Robert Alexander were picked as the architects for the site, and they worked for months designing, writing, doing beautiful plans. We had playgrounds, church, school, everything. We were completely idealistic in feeling that what we were offering was better, good for the city of L.A., 
but good for the people who are being displaced. We were going to have first crack at moving into those projects. Now, if you could imagine 100 acres of lush, green, beautiful hills and a handful of Mexicans living there with vegetable gardens and a few pigs and goats and a little church and, you know, being all condensed in a little postage-size tenement, it just doesn't make any sense. It simply doesn't wash. We were ripped off. My dad made a mistake. You know, the, the guys from the city came and knocked on the door, and they offered him 9600 So my dad said, wow, you know, I really made some money. You know, I made a killing. That's what he thought. So when we moved out of there, and my dad had to buy another house, they were 9600 They were fifteen, seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars $18,000. They didn't want to move. They didn't want to lose their friends. They didn't want to lose their homes that they built from nothing. Some people didn't move. You know the story about what happened there. But the majority of the people moved when they got their initial papers because they didn't think that there was a way to fight it. Our community, our barrio, was well represented in World War II. And some of our GIs, our veterans, were coming home from the wars. And at that time, they were getting the news that the people were going to be outrooted from the neighborhood. And I remember my uncle meeting with some of his war veterans in front of my grandma's house. There's a bunch of bullshit what they're trying to do to our parents and to us. Our government was good enough to take us out of our neighborhood to fight a, a war. We come home to what? To find out that they're going to outroot us from my neighborhood? That was a bunch of bull. They had a big meeting uh, over at Legion Park uh, with the uh, city officials and community people. And my grandma got up, you know, and she says, he says, you don't have no right to, in Spanish, right? He says, you don't have no right to buy us out or kick us out of our neighborhood. A lot of my kids, a lot of my grandchildren raised and born here. And then she says, besides you bastards, my son died for my property. Can you replace my son? Then she started crying. That was it. It was very sad that we had to move away because we were like a big family. And a lot of my friends were there too, my cousins. And the one that really hurt me a lot was my grandmother. She, we were very close with her. My father bought property out in Lincoln Heights, and she couldn't go with us because we were too many. I remember looking at my house. I knew I wasn't going to see it again. I just looked at it once, and I, and I refused to look at it again because I knew I was going to break down. My mother was already all broken, and she needed somebody to be strong for her. My father built the house. I was born there. It had a vine growing, and it covered all the roof in the, in the front. And in spring, it looked like it was wearing a white crown. 
But we moved away. It was gone. And you know, I've never felt about any other house the way I felt about that one. By August 1952, Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop had become ghost towns. The city's acquisition of the land designated for the housing site was nearly complete. Condemnation proceedings were underway against a few property owners who still held out. It was in one of these hearings that the Elysian Park Heights housing project was dealt an unexpected blow. We had a tremendous support for the program. Pretty well finished engineering and the architectural work. And the only people who were opposing it were what is commonly called the real estate lobby, was headed up by the Apartment House Owners Association and other people like that. They called it creeping socialism. They were trying to dis discredit it every way, every way they could. They had petitions, they had initiatives to try to kill the program. I sh we should have been more suspicious than we were. As I remember, it was a very large site with vacant land, but the owner of that property was a prominent business person downtown LA, and he demanded, uh, I think, $100,000 and we were fighting with them over value. He wanted as much as he could get. When out of nowhere, this lawyer for the property owner turned to me and said, now, Mr. Wilkinson, I want to ask you, what organizations, political or otherwise, have you belonged to since 1931? He didn't say, are you a communist? He said, what have you belonged to? I just turned to the judge and said, I refuse to answer that question. Everyone, any lawyer, would immediately say to the judge, irrelevant and immaterial. If that man had said that word, I would still be here today, and the project would have been built. But my lawyer said nothing. Not a word, he said, pale white. He told me later, Frank, if I had objected to that question, the people would have known that I, meaning he, was a communist, because I objected to that question. I said, what about me? He said, well, you have a problem, too. One of the top communist agents assigned to Operation Abolition is Frank Wilkinson, recently convicted for contempt of Congress for refusal to answer questions concerning his Communist Party membership and activities. Uh, listen to this interview closely, because in it you will hear Frank Wilkinson, a communist agent, explain his communist jargon. In the committee hearings today, you were called an international communist agent. Are you a communist? <laughs> Until they have resolved this matter and declared these kind of questions under compulsion to be illegal and unconstitutional, uh, I refuse to answer the questions away from the committee, just as I refuse to answer them directly to the committee when I've been called. I was fired. You know, I'm out. Destroyed. Really destroyed. Neutralized this way the FBI listed. I was, they successfully neutralized me. Crews of television people arrived at the courtroom, walked in to take pictures of those things. Mayor Bowen was removed. He would have been a shoe in in 1953. If this was reported to the press and the Times and other paper crusading against the mayor, Bowen was wiped out. And the new mayor, Norris Polson, came in 
and started the negotiations to turn the site, not back to the people, but to turn it over to Walter O'Malley and the Brooklyn Dodgers. We spent millions of dollars getting ready for it, and the Dodgers picked it up for just a fraction of that. It, it was just a tragedy for the people and for the city. It was the most hypocritical thing that could possibly happen. The city promising you a decent home. For refusing to answer the questions of the House Un-American Activities Committee, Frank Wilkinson spent a year in jail. It was the beginning of Frank's own legal battle against the FBI, which had targeted Frank as part of a deliberate effort to destroy the nation's public housing programs. Our lawsuit started in 1980, lasted 12 years. It cost Loeb and Loeb, the law firm who represented me, it cost them a million dollars in pro bono money. It was an ACIU test case. And we finally won. And out of winning that, we get 132,000 pages on my life from 42 to 80. And uh, in there is the story of Shabbos Ravine. The future of electric. Okay, we're listening to uh, Chavez Ravine, a feature made, <clears throat> I believe, in the late 70s. We'll have to check that out. Um, about how Chavez Ravine was basically stolen from the people who lived there. Uh, three vibrant communities were destroyed, period because they were in the way of what was called, quote-unquote, progress. In other words, bringing a baseball team to Los Angeles. Who would that benefit? Well, it certainly didn't benefit the people who lived in the area where the stadium was built. Go on with the story. Viejo barrio, barrio viejo. Solo hay lugares parejos. Donde un día hubo casa. Donde vivió nuestra raza. Solo quedan los escombros. De los hogares felices, de las alegres familias, de esa gente que yo quise. Por las tardes se sentaban afuera a tomar el fresco. Yo pasaba y saludaba. Ya parece que hoy huele ¿Cómo ha estado ya Juanita? Buenas tardes Isabel Hola, ¿qué dices Chanita? ¿Cómo está Arturo y Manuel? See them trees over there? Yeah. This is this hill right here. It's not get down, see? 
in the stadium, see this hill? That's yep. where the stadium sits. We're looking right there down at the bottom of the parking lot. They had to lower the hill so they can have room for the stadium, see? So they lowered, they lowered the hill and that dirt covered the whole valley. Palo Verde School, it was a grammar school. It was a two-story building. They took the roof off the school, you know, and the floors and everything, and just left the walls, and they just filled it with dirt and eventually covered it. So in a, in a thousand years, somebody's gonna start digging, they're gonna find a school down there. When I saw the bulldozers moving the land, I said, you know, I'm never going to go see a Dodger game, though I was a Dodger fan. I went to one reunion, and they handed the Dodgers olive branches, symbolically. I was two months old when the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> just wanted to clarify. I was, I was two months old, and... And honestly, when we started working with the community, I didn't understand what took place 40 years ago. I didn't understand what happened in the communities here. And, and I think the lack of understanding on the part of the Dodgers was, was perceived as a lack of caring. But what, what kind of crap is that? We give you a fucking olive branch. It just pisses me off. Oh, that's a beautiful stadium. I love the Dodgers. I'm a fan of them, and, uh, and I was hoping someday I would work inside the stadium as a helper, caretaker, but never made it. What if, what if, what if they would succeed with a project that they want to put there? You think uh, we would still be there? A lot of ifs and buts, you know, it's, uh, that's something that we'll never know. All we know is that we were uprooted from our neighborhood and. We went our separate ways. The really sad thing is that so many of us don't know each other. We've all gone and we've done our things, but it's like on a vacuum. It's like we lost our brothers, we lost our sisters. So there's generations of people that will never know that they did know each other. A lot of time passed. Uh... I think it was about a dozen years. And by then, Dodger Stadium was built. I was in town working, photographing on assignment, and I thought I would go visit the old neighborhood. I was driving up these roads, and I kept running into Dodger Stadium, and I, I just uh, couldn't figure it out. And I thought that it must still be there if I could find the right road to get in, but I never could find the right road. documentary on Chavez Ravine and how it was taken from the people who lived there. Buildings just bulldozed and uh, a baseball stadium was put up there. And one of the uh, announcers for the Dodgers 
that it was a garbage dump. Not true. Where's Ry Cooter? Ry Cooter grew up in the area in Los Angeles. I don't think he ever visited um, neighborhoods at that time were segregated. But um, he's playing third base Dodger Stadium. Incredible. We're getting a commercial here, which we're going to skip. Fernando Valenzuela was born in Mexico, but his story is forever linked to the land upon which Dodger Stadium sits, Chavez Ravine. Pre-stadium, the ravine was populated with 1,800 mostly Latino families in three rural neighborhoods. La Loma, Bishop, and Palo Verde, just an eyelash from rapidly urbanizing downtown LA. But in 1950, the city got caught up in the national public housing craze. It acquired Chavez Ravine land by eminent domain and forced residents to sell their properties, often below market value. Those who didn't want to leave were pushed out against their will. Chavez Ravine was uh, 300 acres of kind of like country living, very rural. There were dirt roads, they had their own school. They had their own grocery store. They had their own church. It was their own happy poor man Shangri-La there. The people just loved living there. We had relatives that lived in Palo Verde, in the Chavez Ravine area. You reach a certain point over a, uh, a SEMA, we call it, over an outlook point, you can see downtown LA. You actually see them when they were building the Pasadena Freeway. And all of a sudden, they get a letter. Hey, everybody has got to move out. We want to do L.A. Uh, public housing. Housing authority wants to come in and take over. You know, everybody, the outside people decided that Chavez Ravine was a, a slum. It was a blight to society. And uh, they decided that for the people. It became the object of um, folks that worked at the L.A. City Housing Authority for a uh, a swell place for public housing, fantastical kind of communal living and high-rises and modernistic designs. There was a six or $7,000 check for your home if you were the owner of it. And for some, like the Adachiga family, there was just no way, no, no rhyme, no reason to be moved. They would have to be removed, kicking and screaming, and by God, that, that would happen on national television. They bulldozed all their houses. It, it, to me, it was, it was a shame. When I was growing up, I had a very def definitive connection of what the history of Chavez Ravine was. You know, it's very much embedded in the Chicano psyche. That kind of tormented, you know, relationship of land and place. You have relatives who live here, right? Um, in the ravine still. Most of the families were Spanish-speaking, and they didn't have an understanding of what eminent domain was. And of course, Everybody told him it was for the better good of public housing and so on. I had uh, three staff people that had lived in, in Chavez Ravine. One who was still extremely bitter about what happened during that time, who still would not go to a game because of Chavez Ravine. By the mid-50s, a changing political climate in LA put the kibosh on the public housing idea. But it was too late for the families forced to relocate. Evictions continued as the land was designated by the local government for public use. Then, in 1957, when Brooklyn Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley wanted to move his team, he made a deal with the city to 
developed the ravine as the Dodgers' new home. The Dodgers came to town the following year, playing their first four seasons in the cavernous L.A. Memorial Coliseum. The last residents of Chavez Ravine were evicted in 1959. Dodger Stadium opened in 1962. L.A.'s Latino community would never forget. The bitterness and uh, kind of the mythic lore of this notion that the Dodgers uh, kicked out all the poor people uh, to build a stadium. It's not exactly the timeline that we spent a lot of time unpacking carefully. It was a housing plan for the poor, well-intentioned, but mired in suspicion and a hundred million dollars from the feds. Usually when a city is expanding and, and things like eminent domain are used, it's, it's, it's usually 99.9% .9 of the time poor people are going to pay. So that bitterness is easily overlaid and transferred you know, over to the Dodgers, fair or unfair. When you met some of the old timers back in the middle 60s that were from the Alpine area, Chinatown area, they all had a grudge against the Dodgers because they still remembered the fact that they got moved out of their houses, promised better housing, and it never developed, it never materialized. Oh, you know, O'Malley's bringing the Dodgers to LA. So we thought, Basically, they were going to rebuild or, you know, uh, revamp the Wrigley Field spot. Eventually, we got wind that they were going to... It, it was a shady move. Really, you know, it's a deal done in a back room somewhere. The Dodgers came across as big robber barons. They took over this land and the stories of, of families being pushed out of their homes. A lot of bad stuff kept coming up. And my dad was a heavy equipment operator for the Department of Water and Power. And so one of his assignments, uh, after they cleared it out, was to put in the drainage and sewer systems. My dad was really reluctant, you know, because we had family there, and, and it really, uh, it did not set well with him and uh, his crew as well. They were gonna refuse to work on the project. And my dad's foreman, told them, don't do that because you could eventually end up losing your job. How much sick time do you have? And so my dad, you know, he had accrued a lot of hours of sick time. So that's what they did. They got about eight months worth of uh, time off. The project went on and they knew that. And uh, within eight months, my dad was reassigned to do the uh, Pomona Freeway drainage and sewer system. To me, it was, it was just a, a a big black eye uh, uh, society, and it was it, it caused a lot of pain. Because of that, you know, a lot of the Mexican Americans they bought, they they said, "Hey, forget the Dodgers. We're done. We're done with them. You know, we don't care if there's Colfax and Drysdale, Maury Wills, Duke Snyder. We don't care. You know, we're we're not going to go. We're we're never going to step a, a foot in the, in the new stadium." You know, it was a lot of pain, and, and there still is to this day. For some, there will never be a return. For others, again, the beating heart of Fernando Valenzuela brings many into the stadium and into the fold for the first time. The Dodgers are known for the Koufax Jewish heart, and they're known for the Jackie African-American heart. We, we were never really a part of that picture until, until Fernando. The impact of Fernando Valenzuela and how that brought Latino fans back uh, into the Dodgers' fold.
going to play a third base. Okay, here's Ry Cooter.
Well, I want to get to our last feature here today. It's called The Wobblies. First to a film of the same name. And this is the, the show yesterday where um, Amy Goodman talked about the movie The Wobblies with uh, one of the filmmakers who made it. Celebrate May Day, International Workers' Day. Amidst a wave of union organizing in the United States that includes scores of Starbucks stores and the newly formed Amazon Labor Union, we end today's show with a film that tells the story of the first union for all workers. The Wobblies is a documentary that came out in 1979 and has just been restored and entered into the Library of Congress's National Film Registry. Your name? Sam Scarlett. What's your religion? The IWW. That ain't no religion. The only one I got. Are you a citizen? No. I'm an industrial worker of the world. The one who is a working man could not be denied membership for any reason, as long as he was an actual wage worker, race, creed, color, uh, any, for any sex. reason, uh, sex, whatever. Industrial workers of the world work, good wages, and respect. That's what they wanted for the workers, to be people, not nobody. In the grain fields, we harvested every major grain that grew in North America. Wheat, oats, barley, rye. The heat was 110 to 112 to 114 degrees temperature out in the sun. And you could look across the plains and see a freight train from miles away. featuring oral histories with elderly former members of the IWW who are in their 80s and 90s in the 1970s. It's narrated by the late Roger Baldwin, one of the founders of the American Civil Liberties Union, who died in 1981. This is another clip. But unskilled labor had almost no 
representation forever. AFL didn't take in unskilled workers, and they had no voice to speak for them. It was these conditions that were largely responsible for the founding of the industrial workers of the world. The working class and the employing class have nothing in common. Between these two classes, a struggle must go on until the workers of the world organize as a class, take possession of the earth and the machinery of production, and abolish the wage system. I remember reading of the founding convention of the industrial workers of the world, which took place in Chicago in 1905, and headed by men who were already well known to newspaper readers, Big Bill Haywood, for instance, of the Western Federation of Miners, and Eugene B. Debs, candidate for president on the Socialist Party ticket, Mother Jones, and many others. Fellow workers, this is the Continental Congress of the working class. I don't give a snap of my fingers whether skilled workers join this union or not. We don't need them. There are 35 million workers in this country that aren't organized yet. What we want to establish at this time is an organization that will open wide its doors to every man or woman that earns his livelihood by brain or muscle. The words of IWW leader Big Bill Hayward in the film The Wobblies. For more, we're joined by the Academy Award-winning filmmaker Deborah Schaefer, who co-directed this remarkable documentary with Stuart Byrd in 1979. It's just been restored and screens nationwide on May Day, this Sunday, online at the end of May. Deborah, welcome to Democracy Now! It's an astounding film. Tell us the story of The Wobblies. Well, the Wobblies themselves were—it was a union, as you heard in the clip. It was founded in 1905 out of uh, necessity, really. There were—the workers at that time, unskilled workers, had no unions. There was no such thing. There was an—the AFL existed, but they only admitted and organized skilled workers, mostly white, mostly male, uh, you know, bricklayers, masons, people with, with highly skilled jobs. So the masses of industrial workers— Remember, this was the early days of industrialization in the United States. The textile mills were booming, the lumber mills were booming, the cotton gins were booming. The, the, the workers had no representation at all, and they were being expected to work seven days a week, 12-hour days, no breaks, no meals, uh, underpaid, overworked. Children were working. Um, you know, conditions were terrible and, and, in, and intolerable. I wanted to go back to your film. Um, in this clip, we hear from black longshoreman James Fair after, well, one of the founders of the ACLU, Roger Baldwin. In the ports of the Atlantic and of the Gulf Coast, black and white workers were organized in the same unions, which the AFL and the established unions did not permit. Well, we won the farm and conditions were just bad. My parents heard of Pennsylvania and so to speak why you could make up money out of the street and he decided you know to come north. Getting jobs as far as the Negroes or black is concerned was pretty rough and the IWW was the only thing it was accepting. Negro or black workers, 
you know, without, um, with, you know, with, I mean, freely. We had um, Fletcher, he was a Negro, and we had one Nymph. He was white, but he was a very dedicated Union man. Both of these men, we would have our pep talks and whatnot, and Fletcher, after he make a speech or something other, solidarity, all for one and one for all. We were given the roughest jobs, of course. We would, would have a rough job even on deck. And if a white came along, why, I didn't have no job. I'd had to go back something else. The work was so rough. We had to use hand trucks, and two men would load that truck, freight. We'd have to truck it over very rough floors to the side of the ship to be loaded. We worked 10 hours. People were getting hurt one after another. Just going to the hospital, we had no medical uh, safety rules or anything like that. When the contract ran out, we'd go in for a contract, nothing doing. We had to go out on strike. The results of that, while we were on strike, people were transported from different parts of the country to break strikes. Some would be having, you know, guns as same as they were at the law, and they would be these vans going down. They would be escorted by police escorts on motorcycles. And a striker would have as much chance before the strike breakers as a rabbit would have before a gunner. Black longshoreman James Fair. I want to go to another clip of the Wobblies. The IWW was creative with its tactics. In this clip, we hear from migratory workers Joe Murphy and Jack Miller. Another one of the IWW tactics was sabotage, which was anything from slowing down on the job to threatening violence, which they didn't practice, as a matter of fact, but it simply scared employers into thinking they did. Freedom's road seems rough and hard and strewn with rocks and thorns. Just put your wooden shoes on part, then you won't hurt your corns. To organize and teach, no doubt, is very good, that's true. But still, you cannot get along without the good old wooden shoe. The wooden shoe is a symbol of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the French, and the French worker, when he wanted to rest, he'd throw his Sabbath in the machinery and would break it down. And that's where the word sabotage came from. Now, if you want to know what a sabotage really means, it don't mean, uh, as the French used the words, uh, sabot, throw a wooden shoe into the machine. Nor did it mean burning down sawmill. For what is, what is the reason, what would be the sense in burning down uh, your source of employment? What would it sabotage uh, mean? The conscious withdrawal of efficiency. I mean, that's another clip from the Wobblies. It is amazing, Deborah Schaefer, that you found these workers now in their—at um, the time, now, I mean, now many of them are dead, of course—in their 80s and 90s, had a hard time finding coal miners, right, because they were mostly all dead. Yeah, I think our, our, our most—finding James Fair, the longshoreman from Philadelphia, was our most challenging. Um, remember, we made this film in the late 70s. There was no internet. We couldn't put out a call through social media. Um, we actually created a leaflet that we had people hand out on the docks in Philadelphia, a physical, like, color-printed paper leaflet saying, 
was your grandfather a wobbly? Because we knew that there were there had to be still black workers living in Chicago and um, Philadelphia who had been part of the union. And uh, we eventually found James through, I think, a uh, church that he was a member of, a, a minister knew and, and led us to him. And so the search for the people was, um, we weren't sure when we started uh, how many people we would find. We knew we had a few in the in the area around New York, and we just didn't know if we'd find, you know, 10 or 20 still alive. I mean, in 1977, the union had been founded in 1905. So we were, you know, people, as you said, were already very elderly. They're all gone. I, mean, I want I want to go back to another clip. I mean, this film is so good. The archival footage is unbelievable as well. In this clip, it's what 1917 and World War One had begun. We hear from Roger Baldwin, yep, the founder of the American Civil Liberties Union, a narrator of this, and Wobblies, Jack Miller, Nels Pedersen, and Tom Scribner. It begins with the words of then American Federation of Labor President Sam Gompers. This is the people's war, labor's war. The final outcome will be determined in the factories, the shops, the mines, the farms, the production and transportation agencies of the various countries. The workers have a part in this war equal with our fighting boys. The American Federation of Labor, which, of course, was the established union and very patriotic, engaged in an agreement with the government not to strike during war. The IWW would not subscribe to that. War production required immense quantities of timber, and the IWW really controlled the great timber areas of the Northwest, therefore attracting the government's attention, particularly when the IWW engaged in strikes against the conditions under which logging was done. The general strike developed in the summer of 1917, and it spread up and down the Pacific coast. And it was led by the IWW. In the uh, summer of 1917, the woods were almost solidly organized. The lumberjack, the most uh, individualistic workers as you can think of, the big man idea, a Paul Bunyan complex. Now the solidarity was such. Not one logger remained in the camps wherever we could get in communication with that camp to tell them that a strike was on. 50,000 lumberjacks, 50,000 packs, 50,000 dirty rolls of blankets on their backs, 50,000 lines made up to strike and strike like men. For 50 years they packed a bed, but never will again. tried every way to break up the strike. They um, sent soldiers in there. Soldiers that never had an axe in their hand, they didn't know they could lost if they walked around a big stump. They organized the spruce division. That's the way they used the army as strike breakers. They called them the loyal legion of loggers. We called them the lousy long-legged loggers. <laughs> Wave the flag with one hand and rob you with the other. Another clip of the Wobblies. Uh, the director, Deborah Schaefer, is with us. There is so much to talk about. But if you could talk about what happened to them in World War I, um, the Palmer raids, and their relationship with the more establishment AFL. 
Well, I, uh, the AFL wanted absolutely nothing to do with the IWW, of course. They saw them as a threat, although um, I have to say that later, uh, to skip over to the end of it, uh, what you're asking me about. The IWW really was the precursor to the CIO. Many, many IWW organizers went on to become organizers for the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Unions, which did represent um, uh, unskilled workers and was organized in the 30s. Um, the Wobblies were put out of business by the federal government. There's just no other way to put it. Um, I, I learned how uh, in the process of making the film, how really deep and dreadful the repression from the government was. Similar to, like, lately we've seen the, uh, there was a film a couple of years ago about the murder of Fred Hampton, which had been organized by the FBI. And this was a very similar attack on the IWW, organized by, you mentioned, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was the head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation at the time. His, his eager beaver young assistant was J. Edgar Hoover. And they arrested people right and left. They deported any immigrant workers, anybody who didn't have their uh, citizenship papers, were just put on boats and deported out of the United States. Okay, that's the filmmaker who made the film The Wobblies. <clears throat> It'll be out and showing tomorrow, May Day. And... at the end of the month, it'll be put up on... Uh, online so you can watch it free or for a nominal charge this is the b and it's time for us to get out of here and leave you to mr flat black plastic scott walker morning scott how you doing okay so we're finished with the wobblies Time for us to get out of here. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. And we're going out with Chavez Ravine by Ry Cooter. See you next week, if we're both lucky enough. Talk to you later. the seas of mutiny radio.fm from there you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures they've got live comedy 
to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, Mutiny Radio FM has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I'd bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> International banking, diplomatic cables, nuclear missile launch codes all rely on unbreakable encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code breaking quantum computing. Veteran CIA agent John Clooney must track down the perpetrators and retrieve this technology for the U.S. government. It's personal, as the Enigma brokers have already cost the lives of his fellow agents, perhaps including his partner. John Wessex, the Enigma brokers, is the first book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Hey, boss. You ever want to be funny? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I can tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Rangers. I was just leaving the theater. Black, black, classic. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, noon to two. I'm a freeway. Clooney's friend and ally become a dangerous enemy? 
Private investigator Anton Gruber has been CIA agent John Clooney's trusted aide. Clooney may have questioned Gruber's taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty until Gruber double-crossed him. Escaping with his life, Clooney is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised. The investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent, from his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires to a trip up the Amazon in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we gotta serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission a leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff talk to under go to skinonskins.com that's s-k-i-n-o-n-s-k-i-n-s.com you just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather go see under everything is handcrafted and understated quality fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs he also does fixes maybe you love that jacket he'll put the zipper back in Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com. Volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank. The San Francisco Food Bank relies on volunteers like you to help sort, package, and distribute healthy food to people in need in San Francisco. Each year, over 22,000 people contribute thousands of hours to fighting hunger in our community. This support will enable the SF Food Bank to distribute 43.5 million pounds of food this year, 
enough for 93.000 meals every day. But they can't do it without volunteers. Visit www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer. Again, www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer to find out how you can help. Yeah. <laughs> 